Welcome to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We hope the following program will challenge you and encourage you in your faith journey. Try to imagine this situation. You're the lead detective on a really important case. You're looking for clues to determine who, what, where, when, and why a crime has been committed. But the challenge is there's no evidence, or is there? Today on Focus on the Family, we're doing an investigation about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who appeared in human form on this planet more than 2,000 years ago. What is the evidence for him? Well, for his claims. Uh, You'll find out. Thanks for joining us today. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. John, that was a really creative open for the Best of 2022 broadcasts uh, we recorded earlier this year. Our guest was Jay Warner Wallace, who is a homicide detective, and he has a brilliant perspective on how we can prove the existence of Jesus and believe with certainty that the Gospels and the Bible are true. Absolutely. And uh, when Jim Wallace described his own spiritual investigation to prove or disprove the claims that Jesus made about himself, it was pretty amazing to see how the Lord showed up in a big way to transform his life. And that's the main reason why we want to bring this great content back to you today, because the reality of Jesus and knowing him personally is life-changing and the most important decision you're ever going to make. And you can experience the same transformation for yourself. As we shared before, Jim has been involved in law enforcement for more than 25 years. Before his conversion, he described himself as an actively sarcastic skeptic about God, faith, and the Bible. And I love that because he had an honest approach in saying, prove it. And we'll hear more about that proof in the program today. And Jim Wallace wrote about his spiritual journey in a book called Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. And you can learn more about Jim and the book at focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. And Jim, here's how you began the conversation with Jay Warner Wallace on this best of edition of Focus on the Family. Uh, Jim, it's great to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, being, being sarcastic and skeptical <laughs> is really helpful as, as a homicide detective in general, right? Now, this you, isn't so. what I was going to ask you, but how has the Lord dealt with your sarcasm? Uh, so, so, so if you assume up front that everyone you're talking to is a liar, somebody will eventually go to jail. But if you if you assume everyone's telling you the truth, no one ever goes to jail. So I'm trying to balance what works and what's effective based on, and then also what, what God would call me to be. You, you know, know, this so is harder. totally off topic, but given mm-hmm. all your years in detective work, I mean, what are those things that you see about human behavior that kind of you make makes you scratch your head? Like, well, they really thought they'd get away with this? Yeah, well, see, a lot of it is, you know, <laughs> we don't think really rationally when we think about doing things that are irrational, right? right. Like like killing your spouse. So, so a lot of times you're driven by your emotions, and that's where we can kind of make some headway, yeah. right? Because sometimes we overthink it. We're thinking, well, look, if, if I was doing this, I might do these five things first, because we're thinking as though we're not in the middle of an emotional relationship that is driven by emotion. We're trying to think about it rationally and coolly, but it turns out most of the time. Um, but here's what I do see. Pretty much everything that I see in human behavior is explained 
really well on the pages of the New Testament. Oh, that's interesting. So it, I love the fact that the Bible describes the world the way it really is. And I'll be sometimes working with defense attorneys who, who they're so convinced that there's no way that their defendant, I mean, they're truly convinced that the defendant could not do this because for the last 30 years, I work cold cases. This guy has been a deacon in a church. He's been, you know, he's, he's a dentist. He, he's just got a regular life. Yeah. And because they don't understand the enigma of man, you know, the kind of fallen nature designing God's image, but deeply rebellious. They don't understand that dichotomy. They struggle with understanding how someone like this could do something like that. Well, you know, and you know what's interesting too, uh, so much of the culture right now is debating what's true, that there can't Mm. really be an absolute truth. Mm. But my goodness, where do you see that show up? In police work. I mean, you either did it or you didn't do it, and that's absolute truth. Well, and I always wonder, is this shift uh, from objective claims about truth to subjective claims about truth, is this going to eventually affect us in the courtroom? And I've been watching Wow, that's interesting. So you've seen that evolution happen. Yeah, because Uh. we're we're selecting jurors. And I think our questions in the voir dire process are going to—they always have kind of covered these issues. Right. But I think more and more to be able to to make sure that the jurors we're selecting— actually understand that some things are more than a matter of opinion. Even the claim that there is no objective truth is a claim about mm-hmm. truth that's objective. Right. So it's, it's self-refuting. So we have to at least help and only select the jurors that understand this, right? Because otherwise, how would you render a decision about something that happened in the past that your opinion can't change? It either it happened or it didn't happen. Right. And that's why, I, this is the approach I took when yeah. I first was looking Which at Scripture. Which is so good. Um, let, let's get some of the terminology down. Not all of us are familiar with police detective work. So, for example, you, you mentioned that you're a homicide detective, but you specialize in solving cold case, no body murders. Now, honestly, that's the first time I've heard that. Uh, describe a no-body murder. So I think no, I get it. <laughs> yeah, so a no-body murder, uh, often these will go cold because they're first uh, reported as a missing persons case. You know, So okay. this is like we're a husband or a business associate. Usually, though, it's a husband or a, or a wife who kills their spouse and then somehow effectively destroys the body and then says, oh, we had an argument, and they just vanished. And so you, you never find the body. And if you never find the body, you have the bigger challenge of, number one, demonstrating to a jury that this is a murder and not a true missing. Right. And then number two, demonstrating that this is the guy who did the murder. So you have two, and a lot of DAs just don't want to touch these because they are difficult because there are two things you're trying to prove. And the Cole case is a case that it just hasn't been resolved. It could be years, 10 years, 20 years. Some we're hearing in the media now where 30, 40-year-old cases are being solved with DNA improvement. Well, and so the, every crime has a statute of limitations except for murder. So if you do a robbery and a number of years go by, I can't go back and reinvestigate that because it closes by statute. Huh. But murders don't close. They, they stay, stay open. open. And so uh, my cases are like, um, we just did a case two years ago. It was um, 1972. I remember the case. My dad had the case. Mm-hmm. He was a homicide detective also. And he, I remember I was about 10 when this 10-year-old went missing. Huh. And um, it, it shook our community. And so I remember the case. And we didn't, so, well, I think I opened it in 2003. I think I found the DNA in 2006 or seven. We submitted it right away. It had no hit on the kind of predator database we have in California. And then, uh, luckily, uh, Ancestry DNA 
started to emerge. It's helping to solve some problems. It's solving it? some. That's why I always thank people for uh, searching for their family members with DNA because it eventually means I could take some of your family members to jail. <laughs> so, so hopefully not, but who yes, knows? but that you does, know. does does help. Describe person of interest. That's another term. I think I know what that means, but help us all better understand that legal term. Yeah. So this is really something that I think emerged more after 9-11. You started to see a lot of it with the federal agencies looking at persons of interest in certain kinds of investigations. Almost always, this ends up being somebody who you suspect is your candidate for the crime, but you just don't want to necessarily put the word suspect on him yet. So it can sometimes be a witness, yeah. but it just means that it's somebody who is another domino that's important to tip over in a series of dominoes leading to an arrest. Yeah. In that regard, you used a methodology that you're trained in as a detective, fuse and fallout. Right. So describe that and how you applied that to this pursuit of is Jesus who he said he was? Yeah. So this is kind of like timelining, optimal timeline, different things to see, you know, is this guy, was he in town when this crime occurred? You know, you're, you're putting things in place in a timeline. But when we're in front of juries, this is where your weird background comes into play. So I was, my dad was a detective, but I didn't think I would be a detective. I, I thought I would be an artist or an architect. And so I got my bachelor's degree in design and I got my master's degree in architecture at UCLA. And I was working in Santa Monica when I decided to leave that and work in my dad's profession. But when I got to doing jury trials, uh, that kind of approach, that visual approach to making claims kind of came back up. And so I know I needed to show timelines to jurors. So I just envision the missing, on the day of the missing person, if this is a murder, that's a bomb that exploded. A, a angry, He was angry. He did something he shouldn't do. But every bomb has a fuse that burns toward the explosion. And after the explosion, there's fallout everywhere uh. all over the blast radius. So what we do in front of a jury is we visualize this fuse... This is all the tension that's rising in the relationship. Yeah, this over is days, him. weeks, months. Yeah, he's preparing to do something he shouldn't do. He's buying the stuff he's going to use to kill her or to dispose of her. Yeah, this is the stuff you do before a crime. Mm-hmm. And then the day happens, and then you've got all of this activity afterwards. This is the blast radius, the fallout, that kind of gives you away. Because, you know, people don't do that. You're destroying your wife's property like you think she's never coming back. Well, what if she's just run off? Why would you destroy her property unless you know she's not coming back? Yep. So you kind of do things that tip the hat. And so that's what we're doing here in front of a jury. It's fuse and fallout, fuse and fallout. So what I've envisioned here is if there was no New Testament, no evidence in a crime scene, if I don't trust anything the New Testament tells me about Jesus, is there enough evidence in the fuse and fallout of history to show me what happened in the first century, even if I had nothing from the crime scene, if I had nothing hmm. from the New Testament? Now, of course, I think that all the information about Jesus has to come from the New Testament, but I'm just taking an approach that should reflect what's in the New Testament if Jesus is who he said he was. Now, let me ask Mm. this question, because some are probably thinking it. Why did you even come up with this idea? I mean, what was happening? They said, ah, I wonder if I apply my detective skills to something that happened 2,000 years ago, if it would work. I mean, well, what, what was the motivation? Well, we got into this church. You know, my, my wife thought, well, we've got kids now, and they're, you know, like six and eight, or it's five and seven. Should we raise them in the church? And I thought, mm, yeah, no. I mean, I, I wasn't raised in the church. Um, and I turned out pretty well. Yeah, it's, of course. <laughs> can, we always think that, right? Oh, yeah. You know what I was going to say? I'm going to say that for sure. But, but so I thought, I don't really have a desire to, but I love my wife. And if you want to raise the kids in the church, and she was kind of a cultural Catholic growing uh-huh. up. We didn't own a Bible, and she never read a Bible and never read a New Testament. We didn't understand what the gospel was. That wasn't part of our life. We you never really heard it said that way. Um, but we go to this church, 
she nagged me about it for about three years. Good for her. Good for her. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> actually, Susie's the reason. God has used Susie in my life in ways I can't even explain. So without her, I would be nowhere. But so she convinced me to go. And so I sat in church and, and the pastor said that Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived. And so I thought, well, what's so smart about him? So I did buy a Bible. I bought a pew Bible. And I just wanted to read what Jesus had to say, not expect, really expecting it to be more like Proverbs. Right. Just like wisdom statements. Yeah. Not so much a narrative about, from people who want me to believe that this sequence of events occurred in this order. Right. Occurred in this location at some point in history. Well, what is this? This is like supplemental reports in a cold case. I mean, I don't have access in cold cases. I don't have access to the witnesses anymore. They're dead. Right. So the question then becomes, well, how do you how do you manage these cases? How yeah. do you how do you investigate these old cases? Well, so apply that, you know, the, the fuse and fallout, for example. Apply that, what you learned in detective work, to Jesus. How did you apply that? Well, so I thought, okay, I'm going to do both an inside-out and an outside-in approach. And so I did an inside-out approach. You know, how do we know that the Gospels are telling us something reliable? And I've written about that in a book called Cold Case Christianity. That uh-huh. really is just to applying the template for reliable eyewitnesses that we right. offer to jurors and applying that to the gospel authors. And that showed me a lot. But I also thought, well, look, if Jesus is who you all think he is, are you really telling me that the only people who noticed this are four writers in the first century? Wouldn't you expect that if he's the rock you think he is, when you throw him into the pond, there'd be some ripples, wouldn't there? I mean, it should be able to see this in the fallout of history. But having never been taught that, really, I didn't know what the impact of Jesus was in history. Um, I think this is true for a lot of young people. As a matter of fact, I think it's really important right now for us to teach our young people how important Jesus... Look, I think there's two questions that every young person asks now. So for every one what claim we make, we have to offer the two whys. So I always say you have to give two whys for every what to Gen Z. And the first why is, okay, so you're making this claim about Jesus. Well, why do you think that's true? On right. the basis of what evidence do you... Because you know, everybody else is going to say that their claim is grounded in science, it's grounded in evidence, and you Christians have your wishful thinking. Like, good for you, but that's not good for me. So I want to know why is this true. And the second why is, why should I care? Even if it is true, why should I care? Yeah. So I think young people are more concerned about the God... Not the Godness of God. Does God exist? But the goodness of God. Mm-hmm. Does this book, this Iron Age book you folks always, t- you know, is the source of all misogyny, racism, homophobia, transphobia, you name every phobia you can think of, is this still good? Does this matter anymore? Does anything good emerge from this? Does anything beautiful hmm. emerge from this? Well, those are the kinds of questions I had too. And so this is what the outside in will tell you. Because if the outcome, if the impact of Jesus is evil, then why would you want to examine it? Right. But if this is something that's it's a source of all beauty, well, then it might matter. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. When Joy became a Christian, her husband contemplated divorce. I think that God just really used Focus on the Family um, and your guys' ministry to grow me and um, prepare me and... Um, guide my heart to live out um, in front of my husband what it means to follow Christ. Hi, I'm Jim Daly. Help us strengthen hurting marriages and give families hope. Donate at focusonthefamily.com slash family and your gift will be doubled. 
Just like a warm fireplace when it's cold outside, the joy the Christmas season gives comfort and draws us closer to loved ones. I'm John Fuller, and Focus on the Family is excited to let you know about our Christmas Stories podcast. Each episode brings heartwarming conversations to bring your family closer together and remind you of the hope we have in Jesus. You can enjoy that podcast at focusonthefamily.com slash christmasstories. That's focusonthefamily.com slash christmasstories. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. Hey Jim, you point out how uh, several significant developments in ancient history allowed for the incredible dissemination of the gospel and the exponential growth of Christianity. Start with the developments of language and writing, why that is so important at that moment. Yeah, so a lot of the times when I'm investigating a fuse, I'm answering my own skeptical questions because I'm anticipating that the jury is probably going to have similarly skeptical questions. Uh So when I'm examining the fuse and history that leads up to the appearance of Jesus in the first century, I'm examining really my own skepticism. So I had a skepticism about a number of things, but one of them was just this question, if, if Jesus really is God, why wouldn't he just come now when we've got social media and iPhones and we can, you know, so why, wouldn't it be a better time to come now? Like, why does he come when he comes? But it turns out that the uh, cultural shifts and the, the progress of culture and technology actually does mm-hmm. benefit the first century in terms of disseminating information historically. So for example, you know, you don't, you can't really, if you can't express the, and articulate the detail of the Jesus story because you don't have the letters in place yet. You don't have an alphabet in place yet. If you're just using hieroglyphics to, for example, describe the Sermon on the Mount, well, good luck with that. Right. It's not going to be easy to do. But but once you have an alphabet, an alphabet that's widely distributed across the entire region, mm-hmm. like the Etruscan alphabet, which is adopted by Rome, and then as Rome conquers the entire known world, it exports the Etruscan alphabet. And you have you know Koine Greek, which is being used by the Romans. You have papyrus, which is much easier to transport than, so for example, clay tablets. So these things emerge in time until by the time Rome is in power and has organized and the roads are in place, there's a 200-year period of peace called the Pax Romana that occurs uh, and allows for the Roman Empire to spend money on things it used to spend on war. It now began to spend on infrastructure hmm. like roads. Yeah, so 47,000 miles? Exactly. That caught my attention. It I had no connected idea. all of these other empires, like the Persians also had great roads, but now the Roman Empire makes sure that all roads lead to Rome. That's not actually <laughs> as one of the goals of, of the Roman Empire. And they even connected the Silk Road from China. So now you got access by way of roads. As a matter of fact, the very if you read John's Revel- book of Revelation, there are a couple of churches that John is talking about in the first chapter that Paul planted by using roads that were not even available to Paul a hundred years earlier because they were constructed by the Romans and allowed Paul into places where he could plant churches. So it turns out it's not just that Jesus appears, it's that the infrastructure is in place and the technology, the alphabet, the language is in place so that you can actually transmit the message of Jesus. To spread the gospel. Yes, and this is what I would say. So the question becomes then, still wouldn't it be better to come now? But here's what I discovered. What I discovered is that, let's say we do this interview and we, it's viewed by a million people. And let's say that they saw a miracle occur in this video for some reason. Hmm. Well, I think we are the most distrusting, even claims about the news. We are so divided as a a nation, so divided as a world that we're going to say, well, who's saying that first? Well, I don't trust that person. I don't trust that information. So we are very distrusting. And then when we see something that looks miraculous, 
well, I've watched the Marvel superhero movies too. Right. Everything looks miraculous. Do, I, do you trust anything anymore, you see? But more importantly, you're not downloading the video. Now, why that matters is that if you downloaded it to a million different geographic locations, it would be much harder to eradicate the information in the video. In other words, if the information about Jesus is on physical manuscripts in a million locations, now it's very hard to eradicate the message of Jesus because huh. I can't just flip the server off. So it turns out if you're going to come and you want to have lasting historical impact, you want to come at a time when, when information is disseminated materially, not mm -hmm. digitally. No, that's good. You, you also mentioned... Uh... Uh, human beings being hardwired to believe in God. Um, I think that, but I probably think it more so than before I became a Christian. But mm. why is that so self-evident as a detective? Well, okay, so that's one of those uh, these three strands of this fuse that are burning up. One of them is the culture of Rome developing and taking charge of things and providing an infrastructure so the message can be communicated. The other is there's a spiritual fuse. That it turns out that we are a we are created in the image of God, so don't be surprised that we often think about God. And even today, polls have been taken. I think about eighty three percent of all living humans believe in some form of theism or deism. And that's with an incredible secular headwind, right? Oh, now. absolutely. Think about that. And this is these are studies being done by secular groups. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, a lot of the, the Ivy League schools that are mostly secular now have done this research and have discovered that that really we are born with a default position of looking at creation and inferring the existence of a creator. That's very natural for children to do. So here's what I would say as a skeptic. Well, I hear a lot about this dying and rising Savior named Jesus, but it seems to me he's just a copy of some other dying and rising mm -hmm. Saviors that have, he's stolen the story from. And we see this a lot in Jesus' mythers, who will say that Jesus is not an original story and he never lived. He's just a recreation of prior mythologies. Well, that's a fuse that's burning toward the appearance of the first century, and I wanted to examine it. So if you look and read through all the ancient mythologies, what you're going to discover is they have about 15 things in common. And it turns out those 15 things they have in common are all the things that humans naturally expect of deity. We think about God and we imagine certain things. Well, if he's God, he probably has power beyond ours. So we always, almost every God, for example, can do God things. They can do supernatural miracles because we expect our gods to do supernatural miracles. Many of them appear supernaturally. Well, you kind of expect that too. Ours does, right? Jesus appears supernaturally. Now, only broadly are these 15 attributes similar. In now, each of those In, in each of these. So I've charted them all. And yeah. now, no deity, no mythology prior to Jesus has more than about 10 of these. Okay. And some have as few as six until you get to the first century. And then Jesus appears possessing all 15 of the ancient expectations of deity. Hmm. Now, what's interesting about that is if you wanted to come and meet the expectations of the expectors, if the expected wants to meet the expectations of the expectors, Jesus does that. Huh. And Paul even talks about this. You know, you people are very religious. You even worship an unknown God here. Well, we're here to tell you that what you've imagined, we actually saw with our own eyes. Hmm. Right. And so he's comparing the myths of humans. Now, when I say myth, I mean the stories of deity to the myth written by God, as C.S. Lewis says. And so you see that, yeah, he shows up at a time in history when the ancient groups, the vast majority of ancient myth worshipers are still worshiping the ancient myths with common expectations, and Jesus meets these. Mm -hmm. So all the similarities between Jesus and other deities, they're not that similar, first of all, 
I mean, yeah. just broadly similar. But they end up being evidence for Jesus, not an evidence against him. Mm-hmm. When and you put it in context like that, the exchange of Jesus with the woman at the well. <laughs> I mean, you, you get a little sense of God's frustration there. Woman, I'm standing right in front I of know. you. I am the water. <laughs> but what's great about it is that we share these expectations. And even the modern scientific and sociological experiments we're doing right now demonstrate that created beings have expectations of the creator it's been going on for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And Jesus meets most robustly all of those expectations. And that's not by coincidence. He's the only one in the history of anyone who claimed to be God who actually has all 15 of the characteristics. Like Buddha, for example, has 10 Right, no, that's these a 15. really interesting observation mm-hmm. that he fulfilled even that you know, right. mythology. That's that, right. That Jesus is the fulfillment he's the, he's of the all the actual of it. reality yeah. that you've been imagining. In mm-hmm. parts and pieces. That's right. In all those expressions. That's so fascinating. Let me ask this question, Jim. Uh, do you feel if you had to go in front of a jury today on the trial basis of Jesus' existence, you think you'd win the case? Well, here's what I always say. You win juries, trials, not in opening statements, not in the evidence show, not in closing arguments. You win cases in jury selection. Sorry, it's just the case. So I would say to anyone listening, if you feel like, hey, I've been sharing the gospel with people, it's about jury selection. And I I can't put people on a jury who have presuppositional biases or reasons to reject a truth claim that aren't evidential. So I make sure we, we have a Vordauer process where we select the jury and we eliminate the jurors who are biased against us on either side, on either side. So the question I would say is, are you taking the time? Are you praying about this? Are you asking God to soften the heart of the potential juror before you begin to present a case? Because it turns out you can present a case to a juror who's already biased against you and it's not gonna go very far. And I can't soften the heart of the, my hearers only God does that. God calls, and then we deliver a message, and people respond. So I always say, yes, don't get frustrated, though. I think this case is more than sufficient. This case is very compelling. But there will still be people who will resist it. But it has more to do with jury selection than does the strength That's of the case. That's really interesting. And that brings us to the conclusion of the first part of our Best of 2022 conversation with Jay Warner Wallace. And we're really looking forward to sharing part two with you next time. Uh, By the way, this is Focus on the Family with Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. John, I strongly recommend that our listeners get a copy of this wonderful book, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. As Jim mentioned a moment ago, a lot of young people, Gen Z and Gen X, are wondering about the validity and worth of the Bible, and we need to be equipped to answer their questions. And one way to do so is with Jim's book. Send a gift of any amount to Focus on the Family, and we'll put a copy into your hands. You can share this with your children or a friend, and maybe get a copy for your church library as well. The place to start is our phone number. That's 800-232-6459. 800-the-letter-A-and-the-word-family. Or donate and get the book at focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. And remember that any gift you make to Focus on the Family today will be doubled thanks to our matching campaign that's going on right now. Uh, Some generous friends have agreed to match your gift dollar for dollar, which means we can strengthen more marriages, equip more parents, uh, speak to more people about Jesus, and rescue more preborn babies as we head into the new year. That's right, John. This is a critical time for Focus because... 
we raise a significant portion of our operating budget with year-end gifts. I'm so thankful for the faithful support and prayers of our friends. But if we haven't heard from you in a while, or you've never given to the ministry, can I encourage you to donate today during this matching gift campaign so we can provide more help to families in 2023. Yeah, join our matching gift opportunity and support focused on the family when you call 800, the letter A, and the word family. Or do so at focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. We'll have more insights about the global impact of Jesus Christ from our guest, Jay Warner Wallace, next time as we once more help you and your family thrive in Christ. You're listening to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We'll take a quick break and then return with the second half of this program for your family. Stay tuned. Praying with the kids at bedtime in the comfort of your home. This warm setting is featured in the new special edition print from Focus on the Family titled What Matters Most. It's a story in paint by artist Morgan Weisling, a gicle depicting a faithful pioneer family, and it can have a special place in your home to remind you of what's truly important. Get this special edition print at focusonthefamily.com slash special print. That's focusonthefamily.com slash special print. If Jesus is who you all think he is, are you really telling me that the only people who notice this are four riders in the first century? I mean, wouldn't you expect that if he's the rock you think he is, when you throw him into the pond, there'd be some ripples, wouldn't there? That's Detective Jay Warner Wallace, and he's our special guest for this best of edition of Focus on the Family. He's a famous homicide detective who has some really penetrating questions about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. John, we had a great conversation with Jim, Jay Warner Wallace who had some fascinating uh, perspectives about Christianity and why beliefs matter. Uh, as he shared last time, Jim was a sarcastic skeptic who had no interest in the Bible or God or faith. I love talking to people like that who mm -hmm. did come to faith because it's so, the foundation is so rock bottom hard, you know? They'd gone through it. They denied it. And then they were convinced. Mm -hmm. Always fascinating people to talk to. And if you missed it last time, get the download or come to the website and make sure you hear it because I thought it was full of interesting insights. Mm -hmm. yeah, he also described a unique investigative methodology as a homicide detective. Uh, really concentrating on cold cases where there was no body. Think of the difficulty in prosecuting mm -hmm. that kind of crime. And he's applied those concepts that he learned in that field to the existence of Christ, something he called fuse and fallout, which are the events that lead up to the catastrophic uh, bomb, the ordeal that occurs, and then all the fallout that is around it. Again, very interesting concept mm -hmm. when you look at a guy from the first century and say, we're still talking about him today. Yeah. That's a pretty big uh, fallout, right? Mm -hmm. That we still talk about Jesus and his meaning to history. Uh, Jim applies that methodology to Jesus's life. And uh, man, I would just say, get a copy. And I totally agree. We do have the book, Person of Interest, at our website. Uh, that's focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. Or call 800, the letter A, and the word family. And Jim, here's how you began part two of this best of 2022 conversation with Jay Warner Wallace on today's episode of Focus on the Family. 
Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It was so good. I, I just love this area because there's so many good thoughts that you can give to a non-believer to just make them think. Um, that was what I expressed last time, uh, you know, when I was in college and I came to this conclusion, I better read the word of God. I mean, right. reading these business books, I'm preparing myself vocationally. But this is the most important book to read. Yeah, and I constantly will encounter people, and this is the skeptic in me, right? So I didn't have any Christians in my life growing up, that if you asked, and I still see this, if you ask people, why are you a Christian? The most popular answer I get is I was raised in the church. Somebody, my parents were believers. Somebody mm, raised me. That, that is the number one answer you'll get. The second most popular answer is, uh, well, I've had an experience that demonstrated for me that Christianity was true. A prayer was answered. I had a certain uh, experience after reading scripture. Yet we believe as Christians that those other experiences do not actually point to the truth. Huh. So what I want to say is, look, we have to have a worldview that's grounded in an historical event. It's not grounded in the wisdom teaching of a prophet or the wisdom statements of an, an ancient sage. It's, of course, Jesus makes these statements, but it's grounded in the resurrection. If that didn't occur, none of this is true. Right. And that means we can test this in a way that other religious worldviews cannot test their claims. This is grounded in history. We ought to be able to say, yes, I was raised in the church, perhaps, or I've had an experience that demonstrates the truth, but I was able to test that experience against what I can examine and know is true evidentially, because we're in the one place where we could do that. And by the way, I've got grown kids, um, and I've, one of my sons will tell you that there was a season in which he was kind of wandering, but because he knew and had been raised this way that he knew it was evidentially true— there's only so far you're going to go. Correct. It's kind of that rubber band theology, right? If you go too far with the rubber band and let go, it snaps, it hurts a little bit. If you go even further, it hurts even more. So if you can help your kids not stray too far right. because they know it's true and you can only do so much with what's true, well, that's where I think we can make a difference well, with our I, kids. I love that very point. It's mm -hmm. evidence-based. It's history. There's uh, records both in the Scripture, outside of the Scripture, who Jesus was. That's right. And that kind of pulls us back. Uh, we have new viewers, new listeners today, Jim. So I want to recap a little bit on this idea of fuse and fallout. Mm -hmm. It's such a powerful concept. And for most of us who do not work as detectives, yeah. uh, it's helpful to hear how you apply what you learned in your vocation as a homicide detective to the truth claims of Christ. So give us that refresher on fuse and fallout. Sure. If we've got a case where we've got no evidence in the crime scene, we have to make the case a different way. And I typically will tell jurors that we've got every case occurs in a timeline. There's a time before the crime and a time after the crime. And on the day of the crime, if it was a murder, instead of she just ran off, let's say, or she just vanished, and she's out there somewhere living her life, well, then that was an explosive day. And that bomb was preceded by a fuse of tension that was rising until something mm -hmm. happens bad. And then after that bomb explodes, you've got fallout and shrapnel all over the blast radius. Well, look, if you didn't have any information from the New Testament, if every New Testament, imagine this thought experiment where every New Testament had been successfully destroyed by some evil future regime. So I don't have a single manuscript or a single Bible. They're all been destroyed. It turns out from just the fuse and fallout of history, you can reconstruct in its entirety the story of Jesus you could be saved with the information you would just get from the fuse and fallout so that even if every New Testament had been destroyed, this is the kind of impact that Jesus has. There's a reason why we call this the first century, even though, yeah, guess right. what? It's not the first century, okay? Right. There was a bunch of centuries before the first century, but we keep on calling it the first century because something explosive happened. And the, what the explosive thing is, if I didn't know anything from Scripture, 
I could reconstruct what that was just from the fuse and fallout of history. Mm-hmm. So in that fallout uh, section, because we covered a lot of the fuse last time, so in the fallout of the investigation, where can we see how Jesus transformed our world in those remarkable ways? What's the evidence? So I'm looking at two things. Number one is that does he have outsized impact? Impact that makes sense only if he is who he said he was. In other words, he's either a fiction or he's a regular old sage in the first century, or he is the God of the universe stepping back into his creation. So the question is, am I going to see the kind of impact that makes sense of number three? The only, only could be explained if he is God stepping into his creation. So that's what I wanted to know. So impact was number one. But number two is, is his impact so dramatic and so unique that his story can be reconstructed from the impact? And I'm looking at those areas that were important to me as an atheist. Those are literature, art, music, education, and science. Those are the things Unbelievable. that I thought were the most important <laughs> as an atheist. Now, there's a sixth category, which is world religions. Every other theistic worldview. It turns out Jesus has had so much impact on literature, art, music, education, science, and world religions that his story can be reconstructed from those aspects of our culture, even if every New Testament was destroyed. Mm-hmm. And that makes no sense at all, unless, of course, he is who he said he was. Yeah. What about the skeptic that might say those were all manipulated things from an emerging European perspective. Okay, you know, so that, that's a great question. You know, and, that this was all forced on humanity by these people that were trying to shape and manipulate people. Yeah, I, I was that skeptic. That sure. would have been my claim. Um, so, for example, one of these claims is made about, you know, the oversized impact of Christians with the Christian worldview in the sciences. People don't really understand right. that. But it turns out that the scientific revolution was dominantly Christian, and it's happening in Europe under Christendom. And now, let, let me just add, because I'd like your response to this, that mm-hmm. the basis there was they believed in God. And therefore, they could know the universe that God has created. That was kind of their premise. Well, yeah, there's, I think there's seven igniters there. We can that's kind of yeah. another story. But yeah, part of it was that number one, they believed in a singular, orderly, rational God right. that is distinct from His creation. If you're in a pantheon of disorderly, debaucherous gods that are constantly stealing your spouse and doing all kinds of drunken debauchery, why would you expect that the created order would be reasonable right. and rational? But we but, believe in an orderly, rational God that's not actually in creation as part of it, but is distinct from the creation he creates. The point is, on planet Earth, Europe is a small part of it. There were many more people who weren't living in Europe than were. Huh. On planet Earth, there were many more people who were not Christians than were. Why doesn't why don't the sciences catalyze and take off in Asia or in North Africa or in India or other places where cultures had impact? It happens under Christendom in Europe because the Christian worldview acts as a catalyst for what was originally called natural philosophy mm-hmm. and then became called science. And this is what you see. As a matter of fact, I traced all of this. If you look at the scientists who founded their disciplines, these are called the science fathers, you know, the father of modern astronomy, the father of modern, the father of quantum mechanics, whatever it may be. More fathers of scientific disciplines are Christ followers than all other groups combined. Uh, Let me ask you this. Um, You mentioned your father was a policeman and you went into the arts and into architecture. How did those disciplines help you as you kind of swerved back into follow-up behind your dad as a detective. Well, I can tell you the first several years working in law enforcement, when I was in, in the arts, you know, Susie and I were together probably about 10 years, and I remember working in a firm in Santa Monica and just telling Susie, you know, I don't see us here. I don't see any other couples who are having families that are, you know, I had very conservative views about marriage and family even before I was a Christian, and I just didn't see anyone like us there. 
So I, my dad, you know, this is a noble profession. It's a calling. And before I even knew what a calling was, so I followed him into law enforcement. I was 27. And I can tell you that um, for a long time I struggled. I felt like I needed a creative outlet. I had no creative outlet. You know, I started a police band of, of officers playing <laughs> bands. We played music for a while. And, and then eventually, you know, because I was involved in architecture, I was constantly getting asked to draw the murder scenes before I was even assigned to homicide. That was interesting. So eventually when I got to doing jury trials, I started to help the DA visualize this for jurors, which is why this fuse and fallout that's a visual model we'll put on the screen yeah. for jurors to see how this works. That has always colored the way I look at these investigations. So yeah. here I wanted to look at the arts because it turns out that from the arts alone, every episode of the Gospels has been painted by an ancient or sculpted or etched or drawn by an ancient so that the story of Jesus could be completely reconstructed from just the most ancient forms of art. Yeah. So you'd have to destroy more than the New Testament to get rid of the story of Jesus. You'd have to destroy many, many buildings and surfaces in which that image has been imaged. Jesus is the most imaged <clears throat> character in all historical figures. And the reason why I think that is so, um, if you look at him, he changes based on culture. If you're Chinese, you're drawing Jesus as Chinese probably. You're probably using a artistic language that is local to your um, your nation, to your region. So if you look at, uh, say, Buddha, as he's imaged in China compared to India compared to South America, he's imaged pretty much the same. Huh. But if you look at Jesus and how he's imaged in those three locations, he's he personal. looks radically different because he looks like the people group who sees him as their personal savior. Fascinating. And so that's why I think he, he inspires so many artists. You know, th that fallout effect, too, and you mentioned this and you're touching on it, all the arts, but also architecture. I mean, oh, you, you touched on that with yeah. the churches and what well, has been built. Well, you knew I was going to have to do that. Yeah, you got to get that. background. So, so yeah. What but happens, talk about that. I mean, well, again, that fallout perspective, if Jesus never existed, or he was a right. myth, man, you'd have to, the ripple effect that you mentioned at the top yeah. of the show. Well, you think about this, the arts needed a studio in which to develop, and, and many of Christians were artistically inspired. But if you think about how we first met in the adobe, or not adobe, but mud kind of constructed uh, small residential homes uh, in the Middle East, think about that. That was a dark cool. It was cooler because, you know, it's a hot environment, but they were dark, small environments. We had a desire as a group to reflect the nature of Jesus, who's not described as the dark, right. he's described as the light. Yeah. We also had a desire to think about our salvation and the heavenly aspirations we have as a people group. And it turns out those two aspirations to reflect the light of Jesus and the heavenly aspirations of the gospel impacted the way we started to change our environments. So, for example, dome architecture gets to be so dominant in Christian churches because we want to look up and see the awesome heavens that have inspired us from the very beginning. That awe that we share as a, as a people group is now reflected in looking to the heavens in our spaces. So, you know, Rome became called the city of domes because we ended up mastering dome architecture. And if you look at, say, for example, St. Peter's and Michelangelo's great dome there, you'll see that the engineering feat to create some of these spaces is pretty remarkable. Yeah. But then we also needed to kind of make those walls lighter to allow light in. So the kind of Gothic movement in which the structure of churches is forced outward to allow for glass walls to come on the inside membrane, mm. well, that ends up creating spaces that are ridiculously beautiful. But what is the effort here? What's driving it is not just, hey, we want cool buildings. What's driving it is that we want 
to reflect the space that reflects the light, Jesus as the light, and our heavenly aspiration. It's about the Savior and salvation that drives the shaping of these spaces. And that drives an entire movement in architecture, and it continues to do that. Huh. Uh, but again, what is interesting of all the historical figures, who else has inspired more movements in the arts, literature, music, uh, education, and science than Jesus? If you think there's somebody else out there who's not only had the impact of inspiration, but also whose story can be reconstructed from this inspiration, tell me who that is. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. I'm here asking people what happens when you turn 70 and a half. You get free ice cream for life? Uh, you get more senior discounts? When you turn 70 and a half, you are eligible for an IRA charitable rollover, and you can give that to Focus on the Family. You can find out more at focusplannedgiving.com. Reduce your taxable income and help families thrive for generations to come. It's a gift that appreciates, and we appreciate you for giving it. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. Jim, just to further that discussion on music, let's make sure we catch that. Because music is really interesting to me. Of course, Bach talked about the beauty, the orderliness of it, how it reflects God. I've heard others talk about it's a distinct attribute of human beings, that this is the creative source. This is what gives evidence that we're made in the image of God, that we're able to create music, and enjoy music. Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting concept. Speak to Jesus's impact on music a little deeper. Yeah, and think about that's a good point, because we sing about the things we care about most deeply. We sing about what we worship. And it moves people. It does. And it turns out from the very beginning, the Christian worldview has been a singing worldview. I mean, Jesus sings a, a hymn at the Last Supper, right? That hymn is often thought to be one of the Psalms of David. We've been singing the Psalms of David for thousands of years, okay? As a matter of fact, if all you had was the music sung in hymn form of the first 300 years of the common era, you could reconstruct the entire story of Jesus Uh. from just the songs we sing about him. Mm. You have to destroy more than the New Testament, but also the history of early music in the common era. And so we contributed not just to some great music, but also to the history of music making in a way that is really unparalleled. And this is because Christians wanted to sing. As a matter of fact, I did a search of all of the pop music, we have an entire Christian music industry, of course, but, oh, yeah. but aside from the Christian music industry, there's the pop industry, um, the secular music industry. So I did a search of all the Rolling Stone database, the IMDb, the uh, Billboard magazine, like who are the top 100 artists in the last 150 years? Well, it turns out there's lists of these things. So I just took the entire list, I put them together. It's about 160 artists, I would say, 150, 160 artists. And I wrote about this in the book. Well, I looked at their personal catalog. All but two of these secular artists have sung about Jesus of Nazareth. All not, but not two. Always, all but two. Now, the thing about that, that, this cannot be said of any other person who claimed deity or any other religious leader or any other historical figure. No one has sung about anyone as much as they've sung about Jesus in the oddest, strangest places. Frank Zappa's got a song, I think, called Jesus Thinks You're a Jerk. I think it's kind of a funny name. It's not a, <laughs> it's not a, a positive song. It's a negative song. I mean, hmm. but the point is that it's a Jesus, reference. yeah, he's going to either infuriate you, inspire you, move you in some way, positively or negatively. You cannot get away from the influence of Jesus on music. Hmm. And so it's not just that, so I would say this, whatever you're listening to, 
if it's pop music, if it's country music, if it's hip-hop, whatever it is, it's built on certain structural forms that are utterly dependent on Christians to invent them over the years so that today you have those structural forms in place so you can listen to the kind of music you like. Well, that's because Christians probably invented it. Yeah. Uh, Jim, when we look at all the great people in human history, kings, queens, conquerors, explorers, inventors, philosophers, you know, and everybody else, what is your conclusion about their impact on the world compared to the impact that Jesus had? Well, that's what's so remarkable about Jesus of Nazareth. It's really hard to explain because you know we're calling this the first century. And why are we calling it the first century? Well, you can, I just challenge you to look at every significant figure in history who lived in the first century and go from as far east as you can to as far west. It's hard to go beyond a couple. Yeah. Honestly, I, I made a list. I put them in the book because I think most of you will look at it and go, I don't know any of these people because right. they had no impact on history the way that this guy, this sage from this small part of the Roman Empire... This guy who really had, think about it. Three years. He, he lives in a small, he's born in a nowhere town, raised in another nowhere town, only moves about 200 miles from start to finish. He only has three years to accomplish his mission. The people who are religious reject. The people who are powerful are hunting him. Um, he, people who say they love him end up denying or betraying him in some way. He's got no real established family of merit, no education you can think of that would really cause this. No kids to extend his legacy, no wife, no, doesn't write a book, never leads a nation, never rules an army. This is the guy who then eventually is falsely accused, brutally mocked, humiliated, executed, and they have to borrow a grave to bury him. Okay, this is the guy? Right. Is that the story you would write of a great conqueror? You would not. Ex- this is so upside down in right. terms of what your expectations would be for someone like this. But if you take all of the leaders, and I, I just get beyond the first century, look at every historic, powerful leader in history. Ask yourself, who has impacted literature, art, music, education, science, and world religion so deeply that his story can be reconstructed from those aspects of human culture. I'll wait, because you're not going to find anyone. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Hmm. That, to me, is remarkably unexpected. But that's what would be true if he is who he said he was. Yeah. And Jim, I mean, we're coming in, maybe only a couple of questions left. And one I really wanted to cover, especially for the person who's watching or listening, that may be where you were at when you were 35, hard charging, criminal, you know, investigator, all that. What was the tipping point? I mean, what opened your eyes to spiritual things versus the facts and nothing but the facts? I always get asked that question. But see, here's what I do. In my cases, I'm working cumulative circumstantial cases. Now, that doesn't mean it's bad evidence. Circumstantial evidence is anything other than an eyewitness is called indirect evidence, circumstantial evidence. So even DNA is circumstantial. Fingerprints are circumstantial evidence. So I'm looking at cumulative cases. In other words, 80 things point to this guy. Yeah. It's this the weight. It's death by a thousand paper cuts, right? It is really that that one thing doesn't seem like much, but when you have 80 things pointing to this. So I get to a point examining what's in the New Testament and then all of this impact outside the New Testament where I finally said, okay, I, I trust that the New Testament is telling me something true about Jesus, but that does not make you a Christian. I mean, the devils believe something is true about Jesus, but you know the demons believe this, but it doesn't mean they're Christ followers. Correct. So I always say it this way. Um, that took me about nine months. And there was no aha tipping point moment there. But I did get to the point where I told Susie, I said, I think this is telling me something true about Jesus, but I don't understand why God would have to die this way and come this way. Do you get that? And she's like, I don't get it either. So, okay, so here we are. We've already now vetted the New Testament. And I I was examining it to see what it said about Jesus. What changed for me was when I started to read the New Testament to see what it said about me. Huh. 
that's when you start to have the aha moments. Right. Because it's reading through Romans, it's reading through First Corinthians. It's, you know, the spiritual man and the natural man, right? That, that no one has ever, you know, he chases God. We all reject God. This is really what I realized that Paul was talking about me. That's when you start having aha moments. So if you will read, look, at some point I realized that that person he's describing who's in need of a savior, that describes me. Yeah. But because I'd already done the homework to know there was a savior, I was able to connect that dot pretty easily. Yeah. So what I would say is this, and I wrote about this years ago. I used to work um, homicides, and I also worked officer-involved shootings. And I had an officer-involved shooting one night where we come out and we interview the officer who got involved in the shooting. He stops a car for a drunk driving. He gets a drunk driver out. And the drunk driver actually ends up wanting to kill the officer because he's on parole, and he does not want the officer to discover he's got a gun in his waistband. So as he gets this guy out of the car, he, the guy turns on the officer, and he's pointing the gun at the officer. He made a decision that night. He would rather kill the officer than go to jail. Right. The officer survived it, and he's now, I'm interviewing him, and he tells me that at that moment, he knew, I, what am I going to do? I mean, it was a millisecond. I could jump. I could try to, he just said, you know what? I knew I was wearing my bulletproof vest, and I had seen that vest stop bullets in the range because we shoot at them. <laughs> and so I knew that it was going to hurt, but if I could just tense up my, mu my muscles, I could take the first couple of rounds and get my gun out and return fire. So he stood there calmly and eventually survived the shooting. Right. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. That's pretty harrowing, okay? pretty oh. courageous. But the reason why he was able to stand calmly in a difficult situation was because he already knew evidentially that that vest could stop the bullets. And if you know something is true evidentially, when you're in a tough spot, you will end up defaulting like muscle memory to what you know is evidentially true. And so I want my kids, as I raise them, I hope, that they know that this is evidentially true. And you're gonna, you're gonna have a tragedy, you're gonna have a tough time, and you're gonna be tempted to say, where's God in this? But if you know that this worldview can stop bullets, you will stand in the gunfight. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to uh, help our kids to understand that this is not just my wishful thinking or one of many options that will make your life better. Yeah. No, this is actually true yeah. and it will stop bullets. Wow. I mean, that is a powerful story and truth from our guest, Jay Warner Wallace. You can obviously see why this was one of our most popular broadcasts in 2022. Jim is such an insightful thinker and truth seeker, and I pray that many non-Christians will be challenged to investigate the claims of Jesus and to study what the Bible teaches about him. Uh, you can't go wrong by having an open mind to what the Lord wants to reveal in your life. And for our Christian listeners, this book, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible, is a powerful evangelism tool. And I recommend you get a copy so that you can be equipped to share your faith. And as 1 Peter 3 says, make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you. And I'd love to put a copy of Person of Interest into your hands. And send a gift of any amount to Focus on the Family today, and we'll get it right out to you. And of course, uh, with our matching gift campaign going on right now, every donation you make will be doubled, helping us strengthen more marriages, equip more parents, and save more preborn babies, and give families hope in these days and months ahead. So please, be generous with your support of Focus today. Join our matching campaign and request that book when you call 800, the letter A in the word family. 800-232-6459 
or stop by focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. Here at the end of the year, I hope you'll remember to pray for Focus on the Family and that you'll prayerfully consider your ongoing commitment to this family outreach. Right now, we're looking for more monthly sustainers, people who are willing to make a monthly pledge so that we can equip and encourage more families in the days ahead. We anticipate hearing from hundreds of thousands of families in the coming year, and we rely on partners like you to meet this great need. So let's do ministry together to give more families hope in 2023. And of course, if a monthly pledge is more than you can do right now, a one-time gift is always appreciated. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family as we once more help you and your family thrive in Christ.